Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me now to Acts chapter 11. And we'll be looking at the first 18 verses of this chapter. And as you're turning there, this is basically a retelling of what we just saw in Acts chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius. So we're, we're having the Spirit of God leading Luke to write a chapter and a half about the conversion of this first Gentile, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. So we ask the question with the emphasis that the Spirit of God is giving to this event, uh, why is it so important? Uh, we know that Cornelius' vision is uh, told actually about four times in this whole section. Peter's vision will be told twice. So why is the Spirit of God putting so much emphasis on the conversion of this Gentile? Well, obviously, this is an important event because God's grace is now casting the, the gospel net into the Gentile waters for the first time. This event plays a, a major role in reconstituting the character of the early church from being primarily Jewish to what will eventually become primarily Gentile. So this is a major transformation that's taking place among these uh, believing Israelites. We also know that Luke was a Gentile. And because he was a Gentile, he glories in a very personal way in the story of the very first Gentile convert because he's going to be in that, that train that will follow afterwards. So uh, the Spirit of God is bringing Luke to write this. And in chapter 11 again, it's basically retelling what we saw and read and studied in chapter 10. Well, let's begin by reading the first three verses of chapter 11. And we'll see how when Peter comes back to Jerusalem, remember Cornelius was in Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast. So now after being there for a while, he comes back to Jerusalem and he, he is opposed by some of the believing Jews. So we read in uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So they're saying, Peter, you went to Gentiles. That is not kosher. That's not what we do. So we find that in verse 2, the source of this criticism is uh, from those who were circumcised. Mainly they were the Jewish believers. And I think these were the believers at this time uh, that were raising this objection as to Peter going to Gentiles. Well, what's interesting is that some scholars believe that Peter went to Caesarea around the year 39 A.D. to 41 A.D. We don't know the exact time. But if Christ was crucified and raised from the dead in either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., scholars differ, 
we have seven to ten years before the first Gentile is actually converted. So, so approximately for close to a decade, the early church was dominantly Jewish. Jewish believers were coming into the church. So the church was primarily made up of converted Jews for pretty close to the first decade of the life of the church. Again, we don't know exactly the time period. So these Jewish believers who were embracing faith in Jesus Christ were still embracing the Judaism of their upbringing and their heritage. So here Peter has come back to Jerusalem now. And the news has spread. He's, he's actually gone into a home and stayed with the Gentile. He's eaten with the Gentile. And they have actually professed faith in Christ. But this is wrong. This should not take place. Because Gentiles are defiled. They're unclean. So when he comes back to Jerusalem, not everyone is happy. And basically they took issue with him. They had a bone to pick with Peter because associating with Gentiles was like fraternizing with the enemy. And this was a Roman centurion that he had gone to. And Israel was was not on good terms with Rome. Now around this time period, the emperor Caligula, who was on the, the Roman throne, got really upset with the Jews and wanted to erect a statue of himself in the temple ground of Jerusalem. Now in the providence of God, he was assassinated before he could actually do it, but there's that kind of tension going on between the Romans and the Jews. Well, you can imagine when uh, the news spread that a Roman centurion had received the word and how that landed in their Jewish ears, Because again, the Romans and centurions were primarily the ones who put down the Jewish rebellions in Jerusalem. They were the ones that had to to punish criminals. In fact, remember a centurion was at the cross of Christ overseeing the crucifixion of our Lord. So they hated centurions. They were were the, the, the muscle of the government. So to hear of a Roman centurion has come to faith and that Peter has spent time with the Roman centurion, obviously that didn't sit well within them. They would have been as enthusiastic to hear that news as a bunch of chickens when they see a chicken hawk land in the tree overhead. I mean, that's the way they had. It filled them with fear. It filled them with anger, terror. That suddenly Gentiles, we've been fraternizing with Gentiles and now they're coming in to our our association was not good news. In today's language, if you want to modernize the criticism, the Jewish believers accused Peter of basically uh, colluding with the Russians. And they have a, a dossier to prove it. So that's the kind of the attitude they have towards Peter. What that tells us is that the Jewish prejudice is uh, going to be very, very hard to overcome. It's going to take a whole Jerusalem council later on in Acts to deal with it. And it's still going to be an ongoing issue between Jews and Gentiles within the body of Christ. So these deep-seated prejudices are not easy to overcome. The Jews assumed that they had a monopoly on God. Gentiles didn't have a a place in that. 
And their prejudices, of course, were not rooted in Scripture as much in their own biased tradition and the doctrines of men. See, God had told Abraham at the very outset in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So from the very outside, God was already telling them that, look, a time will come when Gentiles are going to enter into the blessing. But they didn't understand that. They didn't get it. And over the centuries and over the millennia, they developed this hardcore negative attitude towards Gentiles where they should have been the light to the world. They buried the light under the bushel basket. They missed their calling and lost much of the light themselves due to their own idolatry. What that tells us, I think, is that when we... When God saves us, we all bring a lot of baggage into our Christian experience. Uh, baggage that takes time for the Spirit of God to clean up and, and root out of our life. Uh, sometimes it's attitudes that we have towards people, just sinful, worldly attitudes towards things. Or maybe it's biases or language that we use. And we bring this baggage with us. And sometimes the Spirit of God, just in His own providential, sovereign timing has to clean us up, but it takes time. Well, the Jews had their own baggage for sure, and there was certainly a lot of opposition to evangelism and Gentile conversion within the early church because of these built-in biases, this baggage, this unbiblical baggage that they carried. And we do the same. You know, just uh, even within Calvinistic circles, Remember the story of William Carey, who was a first missionary to India. Before he left England to go to preach the gospel in India, an older man in his church said to him, Sit down, young man. If God intends to save the Indian people, He'll do it without your help or mine. Now, that's a, that's a bit of hyper-Calvinism, which is totally unbiblical. But you can see how people bring their baggage into their lives and it can actually affect and impact our evangelism and our outreach to other people. So that was certainly true of these Jews here. The, the main nature of their offense is found in verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You went to these Gentiles and you ate with them. And of course, part of the, the, the Jews, because they had their dietary law, they had kosher food and food that wasn't kosher. And Peter, you've been eating this, this non-kosher food with non-kosher people, these Gentiles. And of course, Peter's vision that he had just received from the Lord, of course, was the sheet that came down with all the animals in it. And that fixed in his mind the issue of unclean animals that, that God had declared them clean. But the rest of these Jews, I mean, that's a stumbling block for them. It's this issue of ceremonial uncleanness. Being around contaminated men, Gentiles, and eating their contaminated food. That made you contaminated, Peter, in their mind. These are Christian Jews still embracing a lot of the biases and traditions of their upbringing. See, what, what these Jews don't understand, these Jewish believers is that at this point, you cannot hold back the floodwaters of God's salvation into the Gentile nations. You cannot hold it back. These Jews are like the little Dutch boy 
who saw a small leak in the dike and he knows that if the leak gets any bigger, the dam will break and many people will die. So he stops the leak by doing what? He puts his finger in the hole in the dam. And despite the cold weather, he stays there all night long until the adults find him the next day and fix the, 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 the hole in the dike. Well, the salvation of Cornelius is the first little leak in the dike where the waters of God's saving grace had for ages been confined within the reservoir of Israel. But it's now beginning to spill out into the Gentile nations and it's not going to be plugged up by the efforts of man. No matter how many fingers they try to press into that hole, God's grace is going to bust through the dam and the Gospel is going to flow out into all the nations. At this point, they don't, they don't get it. They don't, they're, they're still wrestling with this first Gentile convert. They're trying to get around it. They're criticizing Peter. So in verses 4-17, through 17, Peter now gives his confirmation for why what happened is of God. It's not of man. This is of God. And Peter, what makes this retelling of the story so interesting is that it's from his own personal experience where in chapter 10 it's Luke writing it all down but now Peter tells it from his own experience so we read in verses 4 through 10 this is stuff we've, we've already studied but I'll reread it but he retells his vision that God gave him so starting in verse 4 but Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them an orderly sequence saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it, and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. So obviously there were some unclean animals. Maybe they were all unclean animals. I don't know. But I said, verse 8, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And everything was drawn back up into the sky. So again, we have Peter retelling the story of the sheet vision that he had. And it was full of animals. And it becomes a symbol, really, of the church. Of unclean and clean animals all together. And Peter had his own... Uh, understanding from the law that he should not eat certain animals. Pork, pig, those kinds of things. And there must have been some of those animals in the sheep. And he said, no Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then God corrects him and says, look, what I have cleansed, don't call it unholy anymore. And this really, this sheet is really becoming a, a symbol for the church which will contain all races of animals and men, kinds of animals, clean and unclean. They will all be in the church of Jesus Christ without any distinction at all. Because in Christ there's no longer any Jew or Gentile or Greek or free or slave or man or woman 
We're all one in Christ, right? So this sheet is kind of a vision of that. And then in verses 11 through 14, he retells his visit to Cornelius' house. He says in verse 11, And behold, at that moment, he's still in Joppa. He's up on the roof praying and he's just seen this vision. At that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So now he retells his visit to Cornelius. What Cornelius had told him about seeing the angel and the message that he had been given by God. And then in verses 15 through 17, uh, Peter tells about the visitation of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how I used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them, these Gentiles, Cornelius and his family and his friends, if God gave to them the same gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, as He gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So he's talking to these Jewish believers who because of their biases were criticizing Peter for going and hobnobbing with the, with the Gentiles. And he tells of his own vision. He tells of his visit with Cornelius. He tells of the Spirit of God falling upon them. And earlier we also saw where they were speaking in tongues as well as an outward manifestation that they had, in fact, received the Holy Spirit. So notice uh, in verse 16 that Peter confirms that what God is doing by the Holy Spirit, he brings to remembrance the words that Jesus said, that's exactly what's going to happen. He says, uh, starting back up in in verse... um, 16 again, but I remembered the word of the Lord, how I used to say, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, we just read that earlier in our scripture reading in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. The risen Lord Jesus had told that to Peter and all the apostles that look, John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be the one from heaven to do the baptizing. So Peter, they've just experienced Pentecost years before where the believing Jews got the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. And now the Gentiles get their version of Pentecost because now Jesus is pouring out the same Jewish gift, the new covenant gift of the Spirit on these Gentiles and they are speaking in tongues as well. And Peter says, you know, I remembered that's exactly what Jesus told us was going to happen. So he quotes that in verse 16 to help bring confirmation that this is exactly 
what Scripture, what Jesus said was going to take place. And then he concludes in verse 17 again, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And you know, later on he baptized. And all these Cornelius and all these Gentiles were now baptized. What did that mean? Well, now they're, they're equal fellow members in the body of Christ. They are equal fellow partakers of the gift of God to Israel. The Spirit of God. And even the gift of tongues. And Peter says, look, the evidence was overwhelming. What could I do? I can't argue with God. Clearly, this is God's doing. He sent the Spirit upon them. They spoke miraculously in an unknown language that they had never learned. This is God's doing. What could I do? I couldn't oppose that. So he, he's, 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 he's really confirming and defending uh, the Gospel going out to Gentiles in front of these Jewish believers are still wrestling with their traditional biases that they grew up with. You know, what we learn really about traditions <clears throat> is that oftentimes they cannot be rooted in Scripture. And when that's the case, they can still take on the role of sacred orthodoxy, but they will always damage the witness of the church. Traditions not rooted in Scripture are always ultimately a problem. And the faulty Jewish traditions, not based on Scripture, but based upon a lot of their additional thinking and distortions of Scripture, that their traditions, no, no matter how ancient and old they were, they had to change. They had misunderstood the Word of God, and they needed to realign themselves with God's Word. So that traditions, even the traditions we have in, here in Northwest Bible Church, must always bow before the truth. They must always be examined by the Word of God. And Jesus said, you cannot pour new wine into what? Old wineskins. You cannot pour the new wine of the new covenant gospel into the old wineskins of Old Covenant Judaism. You just can't do it. You've got to get rid of the biases. You've got to get rid of all this faulty thinking that you've grown up with for centuries. Because Christ's people are going to be one people. One church. Not two. Not, in, not a Jewish church. Israel. And a Gentile church. The church. It's going to be one church, one people, not two peoples of God. So the Jewish church must now embrace the Gentile converts and melt into a multinational church so that the majority member, at this point in time, Jewish believers, will eventually become the minority member and uh, they will still remain a part of one body, one faith, one church. So that the true Israel is transformed into a global people of God. You know, that's amazing, isn't it though? How many, how many Christians do you know that are Jewish converts? Not very many. I mean, the, the church today is predominantly from a Gentile root. 
And even in Romans 11, we know that God has poured out a partial hardening upon Israel. So it's a part of His judgment upon them for crucifying the Son of God in their unbelief. There's still a remnant of Jews being saved by the grace of God. But the church is dominantly made up of Gentiles. The early church was made up dominantly of Jews for, many, for a good number of years until Cornelius. And when Cornelius is converted, the Gentiles start flooding into the church. It's quite an amazing thing. Well, the, uh, the consensus now of these Jews is found in verse 18. It says, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So it seems like the witness and the defense, the confirmation that Peter gave was convincing enough at this point that they said, well, what can we say? God has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto salvation, unto life. So they began to embrace. Now, that, this is not the end of the controversy, as I've already indicated. It's going to spill up again and again. They're going to have to have a whole Jerusalem council later on to deal with it. Paul will have to deal with it heavily in the book of Galatians. So it's going to keep crawling up again. Peter himself is going to struggle in Galatians chapter 2 with his whole attitude towards fellowshipping with Gentile believers. So even Peter is going to be a little bit unstable because those, those traditional biases, those things we are taught and we've clinged to for so long that are unscriptural, have deep, deep roots. And we need the grace of God to renew our minds so that we can be uh, transformed. At this point, let me, let me quickly kind of deal with some issues of interest to me. Hopefully there will be issues of interest to you. There's a few theological issues in the passage. Notice in verse 14, uh, Cornelius had told Peter that the vision the angel gave him was that Peter would come and speak words to them by which he would be saved, you and all your household. Referring to Cornelius. So we have household salvation implied here. What does that mean? Well, obviously, all the way back in uh, chapter 10, verse 2, the whole household of Cornelius feared God. So we're not talking about any little babies that in any way are being conferred salvation because they're in a household. No, they all feared God. And we obviously assume they all came to faith in Jesus Christ. So we'll, we'll look at this more when we get to chapter 16 and the Philippian jailer. But I just want to make a quick comment about that. Also, look at verse 18. Uh, that repentance, which is necessary for salvation, is a gift of God. It's not the result of uh, a man's free will. Because these Jewish believers even understand that. In verse 18, they say, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life, or that is unto life. God has granted to them. God has given to them repentance that leads to life. Now, repentance is a part of saving faith. It's like two sides of the same coin. Uh, Thomas Watson said that repentance and faith together form the two wings by which a sinner flies to heaven. 
Repentance basically turns away from sin and faith turns to Jesus Christ. And you really need both for saving faith. Uh, Our responsibility is to repent, but only God can give the ability to repent. Our responsibility is to repent, only God can give the ability to repent. Repentance acknowledges that we have sinned against God and involves a turning away from that sin. We no longer love it as we once did. We no longer want to be enslaved to it as we once were. Faith, on the other hand, is believing in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ that He paid the full penalty for my sins. I'm trusting Him and Him alone to forgive me. That it's a God-given gift, again, is stated in verse 18, God must give it. And this is not saying that God gives to every Gentile the gift of repentance. No, he's get, He has given to Cornelius, his household, and whoever else that was there that came to faith, He gave them repentance unto life so they could believe and be saved and have everlasting life. The old heart of stone must be exchanged for a living heart of flesh, said Ezekiel, before anyone will ever repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what God has done here for Cornelius. Paul puts it this way. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. God may, God may not. But when you're dealing with opposition, be gentle in correcting them, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So God sovereignly bestows the gift of repentance, and that's also implied in verse 18. But another thing of interest to me is that Peter is making this incredible transformation in his thinking. He is moving into discovering the will of God in a very important area of his life. And, it, and there are principles embedded in this story, which I think are principles to help us discern God's will for our lives as well. All of us run into times of our life when we want to know what God's will is. Every true child of God wants to know God's will and they want to do God's will, Right? But sometimes we don't always know what that is. We have big decisions in front of us and we really don't know which way to go. We need God's guidance and direction. And some of the principles we see here are principles that we can utilize as well. Let me quickly try to walk through some of them. Notice all the way back up in verse 5, the first thing that Peter says as he was beginning to discern the will of God and Gentiles being saved in verse 5, is that he was in the city of Joppa praying. And I think prayer is certainly an important aspect for anyone who wants to know the will of God. Not only praying for yourself, but if you face a major issue, get other people to pray for you on that. Ask them to pray for you. I'm reminded of uh, Colossians 4.12, Epaphras. And Paul says of Epaphras, he's one of your number, He's a bond slave of Jesus Christ, and he sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Now, why is Epaphras praying for the believers at Colossae? 
Paul goes on and says so, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras was praying for them, oh God, help them to know God's will. Help them to be assured of God's will. And so prayer is vital. If you're facing a major decision, if you need the Lord's guidance, you need to be praying. You need to be praying consistently about that. And ask others to pray for you as well. That's the first principle we see in Peter. In discovering the will of God, this major transition of Gentiles now being saved and coming in the church. Secondly, we see that God revealed His, His revelation to Peter in verses 5-10. through 10. He saw the vision of the sheet come down. And then notice in verse 12, the voice of the Holy Spirit told him to go with these men without misgivings. So God revealed His revelation directly to Peter. Now we shouldn't expect visions today like Peter received because guidance should always be Scripture-based, not emotion-based. But, but God guides us now through His Word, which is the revelation of Holy Scripture. Psalm 32 even spoke of that. When God says to the, the psalmist, I will instruct you and teach you that is through His Word, through His revelation, in the way in which you should go, I will counsel you with My eye upon you. So, the Scripture, the revelation for Peter was the vision and the Holy Spirit speaking to him. For us, the revelation is the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God. That's how God guides us. He instructs us and teaches us in the way that we should go. But the psalmist adds to that, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, I will be looking at you through the pages of my Word. And when you see that, then you'll discern my will for you. I love that verse, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Because every parent knows what that's like. Uh, You're with your kids, you're with other people, and one of your kids starts acting up, they start doing something you don't want them to do, and you don't want to call them out publicly and embarrass them, right? So you try to get their attention in subtle ways to correct their behavior without, you know, drawing everybody's attention to it, so you stare at the child. And the child's over there, you know, they're going through all whatever they're doing and they're not paying attention. And then finally they look and they happen to look at their father's eyes and they see these eyes staring right down at him. And suddenly he's got his attention. And he sees the father with his head go. And the kid knows suddenly that whatever they're doing, they need to shut it down immediately. And what has the father done? He has guided that child with His eyes upon Him. If you want the eyes of God to guide you and direct you, you need to be looking at God's eyes. And we look at God's eyes in the Word of God. This is how He will instruct you. This is how He will teach you. This is how He will guide you in the way that you should go. He will guide you and counsel you with His eye upon you. But if we're not in the Word, we're just out here doing our own thing. We're doing our own thoughts, going our own way. But when you get into the Word of God regularly and consistently, suddenly you behold the gaze of God, the truth of God, and it can get your attention. 
and you begin to look at God's will and, and you begin to realize that, you know, I really shouldn't be doing that. I need to start doing this more. And He has guided you with His eye upon you. And God's eye is always found in God's Word. And we keep our eye on God when we keep our eye on His Word. So that we need to be in the Word of God regularly through periods of personal Bible reading and devotion. Because this is how we're transformed by the renewing of our mind in the Word so that we can prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, Peter entered into understanding and doing the will of God through number one, prayer. Number two, through the revelation for us through Scripture. That's why the Word of God is so vitally important for every child of God. Number three, there is the uh, confirmation or support of providence. Notice in verse 11, after he received his guidance through the revelation of God, he says, at that very moment, these three men from Cornelius showed up at the gate. I mean, it happened immediately, right when the visions ended, and Peter's on top wondering, what in the world does that vision mean? Suddenly, these three men who have been traveling a day and a half show up at the gate and you see the providence of God and the timing of God uh, bringing this about to help Peter understand what the will of God is going to be. Uh, these circumstances were consistent with the revelation. They were not inconsistent the unclean animals were a symbol of unclean Gentiles and how unclean Gentiles have just showed up at the gate. I must have some kind of relationship with them. Now, beware not all favorable circumstances are going to give you an open door into God's will. You've got to be careful about this. Uh, the classic example, of course, is Jonah at Joppa who knew the will of God, was disobeying the will of God, and he goes down to Joppa, and here's an open door. There's a ship getting ready to sail to Tarshish. That must be God's will for me to get, because it's, the, the door is wide open. But of course, bad idea. It was an open door, but it had a flashing red light saying, warning, do not enter. But because he was ignoring God's will, he disobeyed and he went on board the boat. We know the rest. Nevertheless, God's providence can help to confirm God's will, but it must always be tested with Scripture. And this means, again, it's vitally important for us to be in the Word of God. Don't just, just don't consider that the first job that shows up is a job God wants you to have. It may be, may not be. But we should always test it by Scripture. Is a job, I mean, is it ethical? Is it moral? Is it lawful? Is, it, is there any problems with doing this job and being obedient to the Lord? So you always have to test providence by the Word of God. And again, this doesn't mean that God never utilizes our feelings or our impressions in guiding us into His will. Sometimes He can do that as well. But again, we should never put our trust totally in those impressions or in those feelings. We must never forget that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it. And that our remaining sin nature plus demonic deception can easily distort our impressions or our feelings 
in evaluating whether this is God's will or not. So we always need to even test those with the Word of God. But providence can lend support as to understanding God's will. Number four, verse 12, Peter was willing to obey. This is essential. Once you know the will of God, you, you need to be able to obey it. You need to be willing to do it. doesn't do any good to find the will of God and then say, well, you know, it's kind of like uh, the best two out of three, you know, or whatever it is. Uh, no, if you, if you know the will of God, convinced that it's biblical, you need to do what it says, regardless of your biases, regardless of your traditions, regardless of what you've been taught. Once you understand the will of God, you need to obey it. You need to go that way. And that's, that's what Peter did in verse 12. The next one was that he continued to evaluate what was going on by Scripture because in verse 16, he remembered that what had just happened was consistent with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles and speaking in tongues, that's exactly what Jesus had said. That John the Baptist baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so he's still evaluating what he has experienced with Scripture. So again, we find kind of a double emphasis on the importance of being guided by the Word of God. Again, the results of his obedience and sharing the Gospel with the Gentiles was consistent with what Jesus had earlier said. Results may not always be what we want them to be when we're doing God's will. Uh, Sometimes you can be doing exactly what God wants you to do and you don't see the results of your efforts. Uh, Jeremiah was right doing exactly what God had called the prophet to do, to preach to stubborn Israel. And he saw very little fruits from his labors, but that doesn't mean he was not in God's will. You can't measure God's will by success or by uh, the abundance of the results. God will take care of the results. We just need to be obedient to Him. But He's still testing it by Scripture. And that adds further confirmation. You know, I'm doing the will of God because the results of my efforts is consistent with what God is, has ordained. What, and He's sovereign and it could go either way. But Jesus said that the, He would pour out the Spirit and that's what my experience told me happened. I saw it, witnessed it. So that reconfirmed again that He was in the will of God. And the final thing in discerning God's will is uh, seek confirmation by other witnesses. We see this in verse 12. He mentions these six brethren who were there with him who saw the same thing they did. And remember the law of God said you need two or three witnesses to confirm every fact. He had that times two. He had six. Plus Peter made seven the symbolic number of perfection. So in other words, when you think you know the will of God, share it with a trusted friend. Share it with a parent. Bounce it off of them. Get them praying. Get, them, get their wisdom. Uh, Proverbs says, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. So seek confirmation by others. And that's an important part of discerning God's will. And, and basically, that's what Peter could say. Look, it's just not me seeing this and reading all this into it. These other six guys, they were there and they will confirm exactly the same thing. This was God's doing. And I think for us, 
when we're seeking God's will, again, go to a good Christian friend and bounce it off of them. See if they sense they have any reservation and just get their wisdom. So it needs to be confirmed by witnesses. Well, in conclusion, every believer should want to know God's will and do God's will. And God has clearly revealed His will to us in in many, many ways. One of them, of course, we know is the Great Commission, that the church as a whole should be out making disciples of all the nations. And that's something that sometimes our traditional attitudes and cultural biases can impede the gospel. And we need to take our traditions hostage to the obedience of Scripture and be willing to follow the Word of God wherever it takes us in terms of evangelism and sharing the gospel. And finally, another area of, uh, that we know is God's will is our sanctification. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. God wants you to be holy. God wants you to be obedient. God wants you to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the light of His, of His Word. God wants our sanctification. That is His will. So that means we need to pursue it. There's no question about this. We need to pursue it. And the Lord's Supper gives us a wonderful opportunity to do that. Because now we get to understanding the Gospel. These are symbols of, of Gospel truth. That we get to put our eyes on the symbols. Focus our eyes upon the truth of the Gospel. And worship Christ and, and engage in sanctification by remembering all that Christ endured to pay the price for our sins. And let our hearts be drawn to Him in love and joy and commitment and devotion. So God's will for us is evangelism. His will for us is sanctification. And the Lord's Supper is one of those special means of grace to aid our sanctification as we can focus our attention upon Christ and His sufferings and the love that He poured out on the cross for us to save us from our sins. As we uh, break the bread and we'll pray and pass the bread, we are reminded that this is the Lord's Supper. It's not just the Supper of Northwest Bible Church. So we invite any and every believer who has put their faith in Christ alone for salvation to examine your hearts, to confess any uh, conviction of sin that you might have and then freely partake. Remembering Christ, focusing on Christ, telling Him of how wonderful He is, how much you love Him, how thankful you are that He died to pay the penalty for your sins. Draw your wandering thoughts in and focus upon Him and just be thankful and joyful as we remember all that He suffered to save us. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, just observe. Consider that you are a sinner. That one day there is a day of judgment coming and you you need salvation and you need a Savior and only Jesus Christ can save you. And we call upon You, we beg of You to repent, turn from Your sin, and embrace Christ and receive the free gift of everlasting life. In remembering Christ, we break unleavened bread.
as a visual, audible reminder of just the tearing of His flesh. Just the the nerve set on fire as the nails were pounded through His wrists. All the suffering of the floggings that He endured. Why? Because that was part of the penalty that He had to pay to save us from the just wrath and judgment of God. This is how much He loved us. This is how much He was willing to suffer for us. And He deserves our praise and our worship. Well, let's give thanks for the bread and then we'll pass it. Father, we do thank You, Lord, for providing Your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who so loved us that He willingly came down from heaven to live a sinless and a holy life that He might take our place on the cross And as He was crucified, that the Father laid upon Him all of the sins of His people. And He smote Him. And He crushed Him. And He punished Him and tortured Him. And made Him pay all of the suffering price for our sins. And He willingly did that. And He bore it all. He endured it all that we as believers in Jesus Christ might be forgiven of all of our sins. Lord, thank You for giving us Your Son. We ask it in His name. Amen. The ushers would please uh, come forward at this time. And now all praise to Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lamb of God, who is building His church with believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. To Him be the glory in the church, both now and forever. Amen. God bless you.